Good morning. I do greet you in Jesus' name, and I welcome you to this part of our service. Allow me to just make one comment on the Sunday School lesson as well. So I was thinking about this thing of, uh, you know, can we can we relate as 21st century Christians to the to the change that took place there at that time when Jews and Gentiles were trying to learn to get along with one another and and exist coexist well in in a church this new thing called the church and uh, I just glanced back through our Sunday school quarterly and I see that we won't really touch on Acts 15 at all which probably is the is the pinnacle of how tense things got uh, in the church at that time and how both the Jews and the Gentiles were doing things that was irking the other party. Uh, and you can read through that, and it, it becomes quite clear what was happening there. And when that Jerusalem council took place, um, there was no um, partisanship as to who took any blame, okay? So the, the apostles looked at it as squarely as they could, and they said, okay, here's some things the Jews have to let go. And then they, they went over to the other side, and they said, now here's some things the Gentiles have to get let go. And uh, they did that. And if we look into chapter 16, then it says that the church has had peace after that. As I thought of that, I thought of our, our church here at Prairie. So... In, a, in an earlier uh, time and era, uh, we, we were much more of a sedentary people, much more you were born a place and you died a place. You didn't move around much. But in this mobile world that we live in, as I kind of think about our church, um, I, I don't know. Can any of us say, maybe some of our, uh, maybe some of our younger people can say that, you know, like maybe uh, Lynn's children, uh, Warren's children, my children, perhaps can say, well, you know, we've we've grown up here. This is our church. This is all we know. But for a lot of us, we're imports. That's what we are. And we kind of bring along with us what we kind of grew up with. And we bring it here, and it's up to us what we're going to do with it. Are we going to railroad our agenda and look at everybody else and say, you're the problem? Or are we going to own up and say, you know what? This is everybody's church. I'm no more right than the next person, and for me to think that Richard's the problem and I'm not is just pretty conceited. So, uh, you know, being a member of the body of Christ, in a church in particular, is a privilege. That's what it is. It's a privilege, it's a responsibility, and it's not a right. And when we begin to look at it as a right, we begin to think that my problems are really your problems. And it's you that has to shape up so that I can live life. And I think that's, uh, that's not going to bode well if that's the attitude I come, come to church with. So, anyway, we'll leave that go. Turn with me to the book of James again. <clears throat> Last time I preached, I spoke from the first part of James 1 about trials. And I pointed out to you that James's um, interest was in pure religion. And if you could kind of summarize his entire letter as, um, as a, a plea for pure religion and things that hamper pure religion. 
And I'm going to read just a few verses here in James 1, and we're going to look at another part of uh, what I believe is, is, a, is a very real, uh, real mandate for pure religion. We're going to start at verse 18. It goes like this, James 1.18, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, I'm going to stop there for just a second. So what, what James is saying is here, he said, it's God's idea that he, he provided a way of salvation for you and me. We didn't come up with that on our own. He, it was his idea. He begat us of his own will. Okay? That's what he did. And then he says his desire is that we should be a kind of first fruits. Well, what does that mean? Have you uh, longed lately to be a kind of first fruits? It can mean several things. Um, James could have been indicating that the people he was specifically writing to were the on the very front edge. They were very, very first-generation Christians. They were the kind of people we were talking about here in our Sunday school lesson. They were the very beginnings of the church. They were the first fruits of many, many hundreds and thousands and millions of Christians, perhaps, to come. So there could be that possibility. I would like to think of it, though, that perhaps what James was saying is, when we as Christians do receive this um, this word of truth, we become... Um, we, we become a born-again person. We become a person that has imbibed that word of truth into our lives, and we are, by the Holy Spirit, living that. We become an example of what the entire world could be like if they did the same thing. We should, anyway. Um, when people out there in the world that see you and me and they have not experienced the new birth... There should be something in them that makes them just a little bit envious. I think so. They should look at you and I and say, I wish that I had what that person does. And that's not a conceited thing to say. That's why we're cities on a hill. That's why we don't hide our lamps under bushels. It's so that people can see our good works and glorify God that is in heaven. So in that way, we're, we're the first fruits. So you know, backing up, the Jewish people understood the, the, the first fruits, the uh, feast of the first fruits. It's when that barley harvest rolled around, he, the, the Jewish man was compelled to go out and take that first harvest, that first sheaf, and bring it to the temple and offer that as an offering to the Lord as the, the best of his crop, and there was a lot more yet to come that he was looking forward to. And in a lot of ways, that describes us as Christians. So when we, when we accept Christ and we become a Christian and we start that journey, there's more to come. There's more harvesting to do. There's more growing to do. And um, as we continuously are guided by the Spirit into all truth, we, be, we uh, find more truth. And the result is that uh, people look at us. And they see something that they, they wish they had. Alright, so that's the first fruit part, first fruits part of it. Now in verse 19, he goes, wherefore, or because of this, because you are a first fruit, because you should be this example, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. 
For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And now we have another wherefore. And because of that, wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. And I'm going to stop there, and we're going to hone in on one small part of this. I was going to make it a larger sermon, and I realized I couldn't. So we're going to take one small phrase here. As I already mentioned, James here is saying that a person that is a first fruit should exude three things. He said he should be a person that listens carefully and processes what he hears well. He won't be a person that speaks impulsively, and he will have his emotions, especially anger, well under control. And then he says in verse 20, it feels like, it feels like James feels like he needs to say a little more about the anger part. He says, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. That phrase is an interesting phrase because it does leave the door cracked just a little bit. It says, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Is there a wrath that is not of man? Well, if we, we're going to look at it here a little bit, but um, indeed, God is often talked about as, as his wrath waxing hot and so on. And there is a few examples in the Bible where wrath, the, the wrath that the person experienced seemed to be something other than the wrath of man. However, James points out here that the wrath of man will not produce the righteousness of God. All right? I believe that perhaps there is a possibility of sanctified wrath. But the crossover to man's wrath from sanctified wrath is a very short distance, a very short distance, and it does not produce the same, the same fruit. So I'd like to explore this subject of slow to wrath. Let's look at this emotion of anger and why it shouldn't control a, a Christian. And this, this subject is a tricky one. Because, as I mentioned, it's almost always spoken of as very negatively in the Scripture. However, not always. There are some righteous men in the Scripture that were moved by anger. However, the results of that anger are indeed mixed. They are indeed. So what is anger? If you look at, um, if you look it up, the word up in a dictionary, it says it like this. It is a strong feeling of displeasure. Well, That doesn't sound horribly wicked, I guess. But it says it usually involves antagonism. And I think that's where the wrath of man part comes out. There's other words that are used in Scripture that um, are probably what I would call anger on steroids. The Scripture uses words like rage, which basically means a violent or uncontrolled anger. It uses the word malice which means I'm so angry now that I desire to cause pain or injury or distress to you, okay? And all of these things are very intertwined, and um, they quickly, quickly go from one stage to the next very, very fast. 
And I don't know what goes through your mind when you think of anger. Uh, perhaps this is something that you struggle with personally. I certainly, certainly know what that's like to struggle with this. Perhaps you've seen it personified in a person, and you immediately think of that person, perhaps. Um, as I was preparing this, my mind went back to a time when I was about 15 years old, and I'm heading down the, uh, the road, pulling an implement, and the implement unhooked. And I'm going down a hill, and the tractor's in front of me, and the implement unhooked. So what do you do at that point? There's only one thing you can do, and that is hope that you can outrun the implement. And so that's what I did, and the implement thankfully veered off the road, went down over a, a uh, like a ravine there, I call it a ravine, but it was kind of a road ditch, and oddly enough, there was a pond right there, and uh, the implement, there was a fence there, a woven wire fence, and the implement became tangled in the ro- woven wire fence, so that kept it from going into the pond, but it, it uh, raised a little whoopee with some fence there that day, and it wasn't our fence. And um, so the fence, fortunately, was dilapidated, and uh, so that was a plus, I thought. But I uh, found out that fence was very important to that man that had it destroyed that day. He came out to his house, and he was not a happy camper. He was a very unhappy camper, as a matter of fact. And as my father and I tried to untangle that piece of implement from the... Um, woven wire that day, he stood there just boiling at us. And there was nothing you could do except sit there and try to, as gingerly and kindly as you could, pull that implement out of that wire. Well, it had a happier ending. My father was uh, more than willing to compensate this man for whatever he needed for his his problems. And uh, once again, the scripture wave Proved to be right that uh, if you agree with your adversary quickly, it's going to be better for you. And so we did that that day. But that's just it's something that came to my mind. Uh, a, a person in almost borderline a rage and, and beyond reason, almost. Turn with me to Genesis 4. This is the first account we have in Scripture of a man that it says became very wroth. Genesis 4, I'm going to read the first seven verses. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel... He also brought of the firstlings of his flock, the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and his offering, he had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. The Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel and his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Very short story and a very sad story, actually. Who's at fault here? 
I'm sure if you'd asked Cain, he'd have said Abel was at fault, or maybe God was at fault. That's the way he saw it anyway. And note that it says that he was very wroth. Basically what that means is that his anger was uncontrolled. His countenance fell, and Cain was at a very dangerous spot. God gave him some very good advice in verse 7. I'm going to read that in a different version here. It says that, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is couching at the door. It desires for you, and you must master it. Well, God has some good advice. He said, Cain, if you do the right thing, everything's going to be okay. But if you don't, sin is right there at your door, right there. Well, the unfortunate result was that Cain allowed his emotion to master him. And it played out a few days later in the field when Abel is now dead and Cain wanders the rest of his life as a vagabond. And that is a road that many, many, many people have followed through the annals of history. And there's so many details that are missing in this conversation that you really wish you knew, but it's unimportant, apparently, or it would have been recorded for us. What that conversation was in that field that day, we're not told. What the siblings' relationship was growing up, we're not told that either. We're not told a lot of things, but what we are told is important, and that is that God specifically told Cain that he had a short time to get his emotions under control or bad things were going to happen. And Cain paid no attention to God's advice that day. And it was a very sad result. Another account I thought about in the Old Testament is the story of Naaman in 2 Kings. And we know that story. We won't, we won't turn to it. Naaman was that Syrian ca- um, captain that had leprosy, and he is advised by his little maid to go to the uh, land of Israel, and there's a prophet over there that can heal him. And you remember how Naaman goes to the king, and then he goes to the prophet's house, and the prophet just sent out the servant and said, hey, go down to the Jordan and dip yourself in that muddy water, and all will be well with you. Naaman lost it. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. We've got rivers in Damascus that are far better than that silly Jordan. I'm not doing it. And it says that he was, again, he was in a rage. He he had lost it to the point that his reasoning powers were gone. And why was it? He was insulted. That That was it. He was insulted. He said, I thought, sure, the prophet would come out and wave his hand over me and say some wonderful thing. But no, he asked me to go down and dip in the Jordan. And he was, he was, he was insulted by what he was asked to do. Fortunately for Naaman, a few miles down the road, his uh, his servants took the courage to speak to him and say, you know what, you're not thinking clearly, Naaman. You really need to do it. If the prophet would ask you to do a great thing, you would have done it, wouldn't have you? And fortunately for him, uh, he had a, a few a bit of sense talked into his head. He turns around, he dips in the Jordan, and he is uh, he is freed from his leprosy. But again, an important example of how anger quickly moves to something that a person loses control of the way of his ability to even think. Many other 
illustrations that we don't have time to look at. But I had to think of Balaam and his donkey. He was so angry that he was ready to kill that donkey. And when the donkey spoke to him, he acted like it didn't even surprise him. I mean, he was like taking on a conversation with the donkey. And, um, you know, I, I think I would have said, wow, this guy's talking to me. But he's, not, he's just like, yeah, I'd take you out if I could. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage that these three puny Jews wouldn't bow to his idol, decides that the furnace that would have well burnt them needed to be seven times hotter. And so he's heating that thing up to the point that his own men are dying, and this is all because he's in this fit of rage that he can't contain. Again, Haman and Mordecai, what can I say? One person, one person that won't bow to me, and I'm so insulted that I go to the ends of the earth to take out the entire national population of the Jews because one measly man will not bow to me in my gate. Well, it ended up not so well for Mordecai either, did it? Or, I'm sorry, Haman. And there's a lot more examples, a lot more examples. The list is long and the circumstances are varied, but the emotions and the outcomes of these examples are very much the same. Anger boils into rage, and often in these stories we are shown that there is a very short distance between the two. And generally, what ends up taking place borders on insanity. Now I'd like to look at some examples of godly men that became angry and see how it worked out for them. Probably the best case in point we have in the Bible is Moses. Now, we all know about Moses there. And how that specifically in Numbers 12, in verse 3, it says that Moses was very meek. In fact, he was more meek than anybody in the earth. Well, that's quite a commentary. So what about this meek man and his, uh, and his emotions? And just, uh, I'm not going to turn to these passages because we don't have the time, but just think through with me the different times that Moses had to encounter or deal with the emotional issues uh, as he led the children of Israel. The first one we come upon is in Exodus 2. This is before he even does his, his stint in the land of Midian. This is while he's still in the house of Pharaoh, and he sees the Egyptian striking the Israelite, and he, he gets so overwhelmed with anger at that that he takes the Egyptian out, and he buries him in the sand. You remember that. Um, was Moses under control when that happened? If Moses would have been thinking clearly, would he have done that? Well, that's that's an answer that we don't have. We're not sure. But in the passion and anger of the moment, he slew a man. That much we know. And it seems to me that perhaps his anger was a little out of control at that point. In Exodus 16, we have the instance where the Israelites had their first gathering of manna. And Moses specifically said, You take enough for one day. That's it. One day, no more, no less. Well, of course, there had to be a few of them that pushed that a little bit. And it said that the uh, manna stank and it bred worms. And the commentary there says that Moses was wroth. He was just mad at those people. But in that particular instance, that's all it says. It says he was wroth with them. And uh, it seems that Moses controlled his anger there. And there didn't seem to be any apparent impulsive action from Moses other than what you might call righteous indignation. 
He was just upset that somebody would actually do that, I believe. Well, if you go to number 16 now, we have the, the um, um, sad story of Korodathan and Abiram. And in that story, in verse 15, Moses wanted to call these three men, and he wanted to talk to them a bit. That's all he wanted. He wanted to have a conversation with them, reason with them a bit. And these men said, we won't come. And they, they accused him of bringing them out of a land of plenty, promising to bring them into a land of plenty and not making good on his promise. And it says in that situation that, again, Moses was wroth. But again, to Moses' credit, it seems like in that story he controlled his anger. He was very upset. But if you remember, he moved at God's pace, and God was the one that dealt with those three men. And it says in that story that God was upset too. So it seemed like Moses and God were were, were on the same page anyway. And um, <clears throat> at least Moses didn't, it, it does not record that Moses did anything with his anger that was untoward in that particular story. How about in Exodus 32? Here's another time. Moses is in the mountain. The people were down. He's gone for a long time, and, the, and, and you know the story. It's the story of where the people go to Aaron, and they say, we need a God. What happened to this Moses guy? And so um, Aaron says, well, let's, let's make a calf. So they made the calf, and they bowed down to it. And, and you remember how Moses and Joshua came off that mountain, and they were like, what do we hear down there? And... and um, is it, is it the noise of singing or the noise of war? And I've often thought that was interesting, how that you could get up, you mix up the noise of singing and the noise of war. But that was the, that was the discussion. And they, when they got down there and Moses saw what was happening, he said he saw the singing and the dancing and this golden calf. And it says that Moses, in his frustration and his anger, he, uh, it says that his anger waxed hot. And he took those tables that were in his hands, and he broke them beneath the mount. And if you remember with me, those tablets of stone were the tablets that the finger of God had inscribed the Ten Commandments. And Moses, when he saw what he saw, he took them and he broke them. Now, was that controlled anger or uncontrolled anger? Well, it almost would seem like that got a little out of control. But it's understandable. Okay, a person can understand how this meek man was so upset to see the blatant disobedience uh, on a national level was was more than this godly man could take. Was it necessary to break the Ten Commandments? Well, probably not, but it did signify uh, the the breaking of the commandments that was already taking place. I'll let you decide whether Moses, whether that was... um, a, uh, a story of uh, Moses' anger out of control or not. That could be debatable. But we do know this. It says that Moses' anger waxed hot. Well, the one that got him in trouble then was in Numbers 20, when Moses, in his anger and frustration at the children of Israel, is told to speak to the rock and to bring water out of that rock because the people were so irritable about not having water. And it's understandable, again, understandable. But Moses, he strikes that rock that day, and he calls the people of Israel rebels. Was that a true statement? Probably was. Was it necessary? Probably not. And for sure, he shouldn't have hit that rock. 
That was a lifelong regret for Moses. Moses, that cost him entrance into the promised land because of his striking that rock that day. I would say that was probably a time when Moses' anger was uncontrolled. He did something he shouldn't have done that day. A couple other examples I thought of of godly men that uh, experienced extreme anger. David in 1 Samuel 25, when he encountered Nabal, Nabal refused to help. And uh, David was ready to kill Nabal, and Abigail, Abigail talked him out of it. I also thought of Paul with the Sanhedrin uh, there in his latter days when he was before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest told somebody to slap him on the cheek, which they did. And uh, Paul called the man a white a whited sepulcher, a whitewashed sepulcher. And when he found out it was the high priest, he he repented of that. Was that out of control anger? Was that maybe impulsive? Debatable. It was true. But it does seem like that he he um, he maybe regretted what he did after he did it. I'd like to just point to a few examples of uh, God himself and Jesus when they expressed anger. In that golden calf story that I told you about when Moses broke the Ten Commandments, it says in that story that God's wrath waxed hot as well. Okay, so both Moses and God are experiencing the same emotions. And he said, stand back, I'll take out the children of Israel, and I'll make out of you a nation. If you remember, Moses went before God, and he said, don't do it. He said, I don't, I don't wish for you to do that, because if you do that, all the nations around are going to laugh at you. That's what's going to happen. Now, here's, here's an interesting statement. It says in that story that God considered what Moses said, and he repented of the evil he was going to do. Now, can you make sense out of that? God repented of the evil of what he was going to do. I'm going to give you what I think there. God could have very well taken out those children of Israel, and I think he would have been very uh, justified in doing so. But think with me for a minute. When God created the earth, it said he worked six days and he rested the seventh. Why did he rest the seventh? Was he tired? Uh, Couldn't he have found something else to do that day? He did it for our example. Do you suppose this story of of um, God's wrath waxing hot and his 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 comment that he's going to take the whole nation out right now and then through one man saying, please, God, calm down, and he repents. Could that be a divine example of how we should relate to people when our wrath waxes hot for some reason? Just a thought. I don't know. I don't know the mind of God, and I don't know why that that story is is relayed the way it is. But think about that. <clears throat> There's many many scriptures we could turn to that talk about God being angry, very justified. But it also says in Lamentations that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to to anger, and of great mercy. I think today we have an example from God of anger that is contained and is replaced by mercy and grace and long-suffering. I'll just point to one time in in Mark 3 where Jesus, when he's about to heal a man with a withered hand, and the Jews are watching him to see if he'd do it. It said that when Jesus looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their heart. Why was he moved to anger that day? 
he could hardly bear the hardness of the people's hearts around him for what he was about to do. But I think it, I think it was a, again, a, um, an example of righteous anger that was in control. He didn't do anything that day other than heal the man's hand. That's what he did. I think in that particular story, he really didn't even have any words for his, uh, for his naysayers. There's also the, um, the story where he took the, uh, the uh, whip and cleaned the temple. Um, John records that um, the disciples remembered the saying that the zeal of your house has eaten you up. Jesus was so angry at what he saw that day that he couldn't contain it. And Jesus in his divinity had every right to do what he did that day, to drive out that, um, those people out of that temple for the disgrace that they were bringing to the temple. Let's look at some passages now in the New Testament that tell us how to relate to anger. We're just going to point out Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. Ephesians 4 reads like this, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. But let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. Now, do you think there's any reason that all those words are in one long comma after comma? comma? Wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, malice, one package, is it not? Colossians 3.8 says something very similar. But now, put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Again, you can package that all together. Uh, how many times anger turns to wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy talk out of a person's mouth? But then there's an odd, an odd uh, verse. Or it maybe feels a little peculiar. In Ephesians 4.26, be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. So what's that saying? We'll maybe touch on that just a little bit later. I'd like to bump down a few things here as a wrap-up that I think we need to uh, learn from um, these, these verses we looked at in some of these New Testament exhortations. I think anger in and of itself and is emotion that is understandably aroused and can be stirred by observations of ungodliness on display. But, as I've said a few times before, and I'll say it again, it is only but one small step till it turns unholy, and at that point it does not work the righteousness of God. And that's exactly what James is pointing out here today. And I would point to Moses and the time he smote that rock, David and his encounter with Nabal. Both of those men probably were justified in their anger, but the outcomes weren't going to be very great. For Moses, it wasn't very great, and for for, uh, David, he was stopped before he could do something that he shouldn't have. Another thing I'd like to just point out here is any time that we are tempted to take action when we are angry, it will probably never, probably never, Maybe I should say rarely, but probably never, produce positive results. Generally, it's an emotional outlet for circumstances that have escalated or agitated me to a point where I'm really looking for a way to release bottled negative feelings. And I would say generally, it's probably when some personal offense 
has been committed against me, whether it's real or whether it's perceived. And as I've pointed out before, and I'll say it again, when we're in that frame of mind, it is very difficult for us to do anything that will turn out well and very difficult for us to receive any advice at that point. I have a question for the junior Sunday school class. Who is the man in your Sunday school class today? What was his name? What was the king's name? Uzziah. Do you remember what happened to Uzziah when it said he got very wroth? What happened to him? He got leprosy, didn't he? Uzziah was a good king. And 2 Chronicles 26 spends the better part of that chapter telling us all the good things that happened to Uzziah, all the good things he did. He reigned 52 years, but at his latter end, it said his heart was lifted up, and he went into the temple to burn incense that he shouldn't have done. And 40 couple priests followed him in there and said, Uzziah, you shouldn't do it. This isn't going to turn out well. And it says that Uzziah was very wroth very wroth, and his heart was lifted up, and he did it anyway, and he got leprosy. That was the end result of that. You know, I would just like to say this. It is a challenge for us, especially as parents, to become frustrated, which spills over into anger, Ken, at our, at our children at times. And I think this is why in Colossians 3 it says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. You know, I have, uh, and I'm sure you probably have too, observed children that have grown up in an environment where explosive or continual anger dominated the house. Almost always there will be strained relationships, resentful attitudes, and children that grow up without an example of how to properly relate to problems. And generally, very insecure with a myriad of other relational and emotional problems that must be dealt with that are related to this. And the damage can be very extensive, very monumental. And I would just like to encourage us not to let that define our our homes. But I would also like to hasten to say, if perhaps you or I have been the recipient of such behavior, do not let it define who you are. That's very easy for us to let that define who we become. And that's a big, big challenge for us not to allow that to happen. Another point I'd like to make quickly, as we've noticed, anger can be a righteous motivator to do the right thing in certain circumstances. I would point to Numbers 25, where Phineas was so angry at the immorality that was being committed between the Israelites and the, and the Moabites that day, that it said he took a sword and he killed an Israelite and a Moabite that were practicing immorality in broad daylight. When he did that, it said his zeal stayed the wrath of God. Okay, so in that particular instance, there was a man that was was rightfully angry at the absolute blasphemy that he was seeing around him, and his zeal stayed the wrath of God. And I believe that's probably an example of where a person was angry, but he did not sin. I would like to point out one more verse here. Well, we read the verse, but it's in um, it's verse 21 of the text we read, James 1. 
It says, um, wherefore, laying aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Now, that's not words we use very often, but we certainly understand what he's talking about. I'd like to make this point. Sometimes anger in a person's life can be an indication of a perpetual, undealt-with, hidden sin in a person's life. I've served on the uh, Maranatha School Board now with uh, Dale Eby for a number of years, and he's uh, he's full of stories of his billboard evangelism encounters with people. And he told me uh, in a conversation I had with him a, a while back that he has found that people that tend to have perpetual, uncontrolled anger problems in their life, generally, if you dig deep enough, you will find unresolved sin, generally immorality, but some sort of unresolved sin in that person's life. Whether it's pornography addiction, immoral behavior, marital unfaithfulness, perhaps an inability to quit a tobacco habit or some other besetting sin that uh, is in a person's life, harboring bitterness or grudges against someone, And that self-disappointment and inadequacy of victory puts a person in a very poor mental disposition. And when they're in that frame of mind, what we want to do is try to portray ourselves to others of something we really aren't, i.e. hypocrisy. And so that self-loathing that a person ends up having over that, mingled with the guilt that he's wrestling with, it's very easy to trigger the anger in his life And unfortunately, it's usually the dog or the children or the spouse or the employee that is the brunt of the attempt to relieve that inward pressure. And I thought that was interesting. And uh, Dale's a much wiser and much more experienced man than I, and I took his word for that. But uh, that could explain sometimes why people deal with anger that seems to be um, unable to be answered. And I think, I think we do well to take personal introspection of our own lives. I think also anger can be exacerbated by other circumstances in our lives that are gone awry or are taking a turn for the worse. And I'm, I'm particularly thinking here of a person that has, is up to his ears in financial pressures or debt or something like that. And I had to think of the uh, verse in Timothy where it says the rich pierce themselves through with many sorrows. That's a very broad statement. But if a person is in emotional and um, financial turmoil, I'm just using that, it could be other things, uh, it, it can put him again in a mental disposition that does not bode well for his emotions and spiritual uh, outlook otherwise too. Ultimately, anger... Uncontrolled anger mars the testimony of God. A person that can control strong impulses, such as anger, in the face of insult or injustice or intreatment, is one of the most powerful witnesses of God at work in a person's life. Instead of Jesus, when he was reviled, he didn't revile again. That, that ability to, stay, to face that kind of injustice without lashing back is, is, is indeed an indicator of uh, of the work of God in a person's life. While, on the other hand, a person who professes to know God but repeatedly and often loses his temper and spews out profanity, it's a stench in the nostrils of God and to those around him. Well, wrapping this up, 
We've looked at a lot of the nuances of anger. It is indeed an emotion, and I would dare say if you would if you would tell me you have never struggled or you have never succumbed to anger, I'd wonder if you're human, to be honest. I think it's something we all know something about. But we are told that that wrath does not work the righteousness of God. And you and I have to do something with that. How seriously do we take that? How serious are we about controlling our emotions? How seriously are we about asking God for help when we can't help ourselves? Removing triggers that just make it more likely that we will succumb to anger. How willing are we to just keep that bottled sin just down there and let the anger um, keep everybody manipulated? Or shift blame, not own my problem, but blame it on someone else. You know, in the example of Saul and David, when it said that the spirit of Saul departed from, from uh, or the spirit of uh, the Lord departed from Saul, David immediately became the object of his malice, and he had to run for his life. Again, it shows that the wrath of man never works the righteousness of God. What I'd like to give you is this verse as a concluding verse. Psalm 37, 8, very good verse, very short. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Now, that's King James. If we were going to say it in today's language, we'd say it like this. Cease from anger and forsake wrath because it will only tend to evil. And I don't think truer words have ever been spoken. So, friends, I hope you've been inspired today. Um, Maybe a bit of a downer for a message. I'm not sure. But it is reality. I think it's reality. It's something we deal with. And I think James nailed it when he said that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And hopefully, we're more interested in the the righteousness of God than uh, releasing our emotions that should uh, be brought to the foot of the cross on someone else. I hope that's where we find ourselves today. Let's kneel for prayer.